Welcome to The Forest and the Trees, Global and Local Perspectives on the Environment, with your host, Melinda Tuhus. Well, from May 24th to June 4th, I participated in what we called the Walk for Appalachia's Future. It was mostly a drive along the 303-mile route of the Mountain Valley Frack Gas Pipeline across West Virginia and Southwest Virginia. The pipeline is billions over budget and years past its initial completion date. Many of the permits it had have been withdrawn and others have not yet been issued, so right now it cannot cross national forest land or any of the hundreds of watercourses along the route, and construction has been halted for the past two years. This pipeline should have died years ago, but since it would most likely allow frack gas to be converted to liquefied natural gas, or LNG, for export, the war in Ukraine has raised the hopes of its investors that it can be finished. It is currently tied up in multiple court cases. We met along the way with many local groups fighting the pipeline. We heard their stories and promised to amplify them when we returned home. On my show today, I'm sharing the voices of several of them. Stay tuned. Becky Crabtree is a teacher and book author and a landowner who lives at the base of Peters Mountain on the border between West Virginia and southwestern Virginia. While John Denver described it as almost heaven, I'd say it is heaven or what I'd like it to look like if there were such a place and I got to go there. She tells the story of how she came to lock herself into her old car across the pipeline easement on her property. I wrote politicians and I signed um I signed petitions, I wrote letters, I went to public meetings. I am not a speaker, but I spoke it passionately at public meetings, all to no avail. Um, went to a legislator and he laughed when we said, um, we gotta stop this pipeline. And he, he laughed, you know. To no avail, we went to our, we have a state attorney general, his name is Morrissey. I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but he advised me that this was no, not a crime. I reported it as a crime, coming across the property without, um, without the common good being part of it. Mm-hmm. If, if our county or state had wanted to build a hospital on our land or a school, even a blasted highway, we would have given them the land. But the proposal was for a natural gas pipeline, as you know, that is probably not gonna support any of us that is going to be shipped to probably overseas at great profit to the corporation and at minimal money being exchanged to us. We were offered, we just paid about 100,000 for 25 acres and they offered us 12 for the property. What? We did not accept it, so it was, it was condemned and they took mm. it. So that's my sad little story of landowner rights. Been through a lot of procedural and court deals and realize that one person can make a difference. So I encourage you to make a difference, one person. Mm-hmm. I'm running for the House of Delegates. I've, I've uh, about given up on the current governing bodies of this country. So anyway, that's my story. I don't know what else to tell you. Uh, tell us a little more about your, your running. Are you running with a party or with and, and I'm a Democrat. I don't say that too loud every place. But um, it's about two to one Republican in this county, and uh, I'm getting the list of all 
No, it's 9,000 registered voters in this county, and I will be knocking on every one of their doors. So You said it's two to one Republican to Democrat. So registered, yes. Do you, how do your neighbors feel about this? Do they agree with you about the pipeline, or do they support it? Part of the agreement is not to speak out against the pipeline. Part right. of the agreement when you get money. And I, I interpret contracts to my own liking, and I think maybe speaking out against the pipeline is different from speaking for the environment. One of the things on my platform is clean air and water, and I, that is my ticket to anti-pipeline. Yeah. <laughs> and it is a lot less controversial because right. I need to be elected in order to do more. Right. So, um, the morning that my car somehow got over there on the field, I just don't know exactly how to how to tell this story yet. <laughs> it was it was very exciting. It was um, akin to being in labor because you know something good's going to happen, <laughs> but it's not particularly pleasant. So um, I was in the car, welded in, locked in. Can, I'm sorry. Can you give a little more background about like where, why you did it, and where? Why, well, why what? I did it was to block the pipeline from getting one more foot, and and to make a statement. Um, since then, our illustrious legislature has passed felony status legislation, so that have if I were to do it on my own property and protest an infrastructure such as a pipeline, it would be felony charges. And I went and talked to the guy in the legislature last spring. And I said, this is America. This is how America was built. People protesting things that weren't right. And um, he kind of then walked off. Mm -hmm. So at any rate, that wasn't the law then. I knew that the people of Monroe County were not going to send me away for sitting in my car on my property. <laughs> property that I had fought to keep. I just, I think, I teach at James Monroe High School. I have kind of a sense of the mentality of my students, which is the mentality of their parents. Right. And um, I knew I wasn't going to be punished for sitting on my own land. I, however, I was arrested and I was charged. And it was, do you remember the charges? It was for saying, it was for saying when he said, Becky, you've got to get out of the car. And I said, no, sir, I can't. And that's obstruction. Yeah. So that was my crime. Because you were um, locked in? I was. I was. Um, I was chained through the dashboard to the engine block. And the car was either welded or locked shut. And boy, it didn't take them long to get in. I don't know if y'all were there, but um, the Pinto is not made of superior steel. <laughs> and the back door, and, and the Pinto is, is the car I got when I was a freshman in college. So it was my car that I couldn't bear to sell. And it's awful. It's, it's old. It's 50 years old. But it was, I, I picked it out. I picked the day it was going to be made. I picked the color. You know, it, it, it was my car. We got married, and that was our honeymoon car. So the car had a great deal of sentimental value, and I felt like she wanted to do this with me. So anyway, we did that. They got me out fairly quickly, took me to, um, oh, and it's kind of a sweet story about the police officers. One of the deputies I taught in second grade. <laughs> and he scuffed his feet around and looked around and somebody'd snap an order at him and he'd just kind of wander a little farther from me. He did not participate in my arrest. And then a, a much younger fella leaned into the, I was up on like Jenga sticks up above the pipeline, the trench actually. And uh, he was going, Miss Crabtree, 
if you could just hold out till noon, we wouldn't have to go back to the office. <laughs> I mean, they were supportive. They were, they were kind and they were good, but the state troopers rolled in who did not know me, who no. are not necessarily local, and they were a bit more brusque than the, and, and said things like, do you realize there might be people who need the police right now, and you've got them tied up. Oh, that's what they mm. say. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I had been prepped very well for that kind of statement. Mm. I said, well, please, you are dismissed. Go. <laughs> Go. Go help the people. I'm fine. There's no danger here. <laughs> but their allegiance to the pipeline was sickening. It was just sickening mm. that they catered to what they wanted. And when they were trying to figure out how to unchain me and they wanted to get under the car, my husband was there, and he evidently cared something for me because he was very concerned that they were going to do something to tip that car over, the, the pipeline fellas. Mm. So he immediately said, you policemen are trespassing. This is private property. Get off it. So that was a little bit of a row. And meantime, um, friends are playing music from the 70s. It was just quite the gala event. Um, but the bottom line was for half a day, I blocked the pipeline. It's not a big deal. It's not a big thing, but it was big to me. Yeah, but what an inspiration. Well, I don't know. We got some good publicity out of it. Yeah. It was that <laughs> was good. The point. And it showed other landowners you don't have to take it. I mean, we might not win. I, I don't even believe that we will lose now. But at that point, we might not win, but you've got to have some dignity in this world. You've got to stand up for something. And I say that now as a politician and realize I can't even say what I want to say um, in certain crowds without being run off. So I'm learning to temper what I believe, and I say what I believe, but I might not be quite as provocative as I would be were I not running for office in a two-to-one Republican county. How far advanced is it here, the digging up your land and putting All in the a pipeline? All the pipes in the ground on our land, but it mm -hmm. does not cross, I don't know which way you came in, but it has to cross Wilson Mill Road down in this valley, and then it goes up, the, the pipeline should go across Mr. Allen's Fields and across Peters Mountain up that way, but there is nothing in the ground from our neighbor, uh, what's his name? One moment, Job and his wife have a farm, and there's a little stone with his name on it and it has stopped at the edge of the road on his property so they did ours they did one more landowners and it has been stopped for two years and i didn't Is there stop like it, a but river that they didn't get a permit for that's why no no they can't cross the national forest on peter's uh, mountain yeah there's a fourth circuit decision stopped it from crossing Jefferson National Forest. So. And, but that is always subject to change. Yep. I mean, yeah. the legalities yep. are certainly blurry sometimes. Mm -hmm. yep. So right now they can't do it. And we have man camps around where campers sit. Very nice campers, worth far more than their house, um, where <laughs> pipeline workers stay. And there was one with 13 campers in it at Linside last summer. It has one camper in it now. So they're, they're gone for now. I mean, I'm sure uh, order back to work would get them all back in town, but the, it is so steep. We call it grab a tree steep going up there because you can't walk <laughs> up it. You can't walk up it. Nobody's ever built a pipeline this big on this steep of terrain. On their website, and I think it's still on there because they're too silly to take it off. The reason that this pipeline benefits Monroe County is because residences and, and businesses can hook on and have natural gas. We have very limited supply of natural gas. And wouldn't that be great? So at a public meeting, I said, I'd like to hook on. You know, it's just for, 
And he said, well, you know, you've got to use an adapter. I said, I'd use an adapter, how much? <laughs> million dollars, million dollars for a residence to hook onto it. So it's just, it's bull. And we call those pipelines now, instead of pipelines, they're pipelines. That was Becky Crabtree, one of several older women we met who took radical action, like car blockades and tree sits, to try to delay and hopefully stop the pipeline. And I should mention that we did get to do some walking, on quiet country roads, mostly along beautiful rivers, through small towns, and even a hike on the Appalachian Trail. Before my trip, I had read about the Radford Army Ammunitions Plant near Roanoke, Virginia, that does open burning of toxic military waste, just like the burn pits the military used in Iraq and Afghanistan that have been implicated in serious health conditions. Turns out, our walk passed very close to it, and one night after dinner, we had a guest speaker, Alyssa Carpenter, who's co-founder and co-chair of Citizens for Arsenal Accountability, a group that's fighting the plant. The Radford Army Ammunition Plant is the largest uh, polluter of Virginia and the largest uh, arms manufacturer of the United States, I believe. Um, they practice open burning and incineration of uh, toxic chemicals to demilitarize uh, our Army's weapons. So you said the biggest arms manufacturer? Are they manufacturing weapons or they're demanufacturing them? They're doing both. Right, so they, they, are, um, they are both a production facility for ammunition, so it goes out and it also comes back in to be demilitarized uh, once it is expired. And it's an open burn process, which means the whatever is burned goes just out into the air, and you had said that it's actually near a lot of facility, vulnerable facilities. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about that? Absolutely, so whenever you're doing open burning, all of the contaminants are... Um, are put directly into the environment and so it's really concerning because there are uh, within a 10 kilometer distance around the Radford Army Ammunition Plant there are um, eight elementary schools, 12 daycare centers, two major universities, and a host of family farms, residences, and nursing homes for our elder populations. You learned about this. Now you have some direct impact. Explain how you think or know that your problems are related to what goes on there. When I started college at Virginia Tech, I lived first at Fox Ridge, which is just down the road off of Price's Fork. Um, and then after uh, about two years, I moved to McCoy, uh, the community that is right across the river from the Radford Army Ammunition Plant. Um, I was less than a mile um, from the ammunition plant. And I don't have any history of thyroid issues in my family. Um, so after I learned about these issues that you know my community was experiencing, we founded this organization and then four years later, I was diagnosed with the exact same issues that we had been advocating for our community over. So what, what is that and what is the, what's the treatment and how are you doing? Um, so I have um, thyroid disease and I had a goiter, which is where your, uh, your whole thyroid just kind of swells up, as well as multiple nodules. Um, those nodules were concerning because they can turn into cancer and so I was advised that uh, my whole thyroid needed to be removed due to how how diseased it was and, and how many thyroid nodules I had um, so within a month um, my whole thyroid was removed so after that um, I had to begin taking synthetic thyroid hormones and so my body has been really struggling to adjust and um, I've had to kind of jump through the medical hoops of advocating for myself to receive proper care. 
When were you diagnosed? Um, July of 2020. So you mentioned that you have Earth Justice working with you. I know they're a very reputable and, and pretty successful legal operation. What what is your strategy? What is your group's strategy for uh, getting rid of this open burning of toxic materials? Absolutely. So we've been working with a coalition of people uh, all across the United States with the ceasefire campaign. And, you know, through that strategy, we've been engaging with the EPA in order to end the loophole that allows open burning to continue at these types of facilities. Um, we've also done a lot of advocacy with our uh, local representatives and our senators, such as Tim Kaine, uh, to kind of help us halt the situation so we can make sure that if there is a safer alternative for our community, that that is actually explored rather than um, choosing not to see what the alternatives are and install technology that is very old um, and that doesn't actually solve any of our issues. In fact, creates more issues for our community um, as far as pollution goes. So the flyer I read, it sounded like you were saying, without being specific, that there were safer alternatives. What can you say about that? Um, yeah, so with our coalition work, we're learning that there are a lot of different communities that have um, achieved a safer alternative than burning because incineration is burning and open burning is burning and neither of those methods of disposal are are safe for communities and so um, we know that there are technologies we know that some communities have already implemented them and are using them at their facilities rather than um, relying on burning so with all of the, you know, kind of the ball rolling in the media um, and in legislative circles with veterans receiving support for their health issues um, that have come from open burning, it's really important for us to let everybody know that it's not just veterans. Um, it is, you know, my neighbors. It is your neighbors. Um, it is our entire community. It is people in, you know, communities like Guam and Puerto Rico and Alabama and Kentucky and California who are also experiencing these issues. Um, these are civilians and it's absolutely happening to us as well and there needs to be an expansion of the benefits that are um, awarded in order to achieve justice for our community as well. That was Alyssa Carpenter with Citizens for Arsenal. That was Alyssa Carpenter with Citizens for Arsenal Accountability. In the city of Roanoke, we learned about another kind of pollution, the racism behind the federal urban renewal program of the 1950s and 60s. As we got to participate in a walking tour of Gainesboro, the thriving black community of Roanoke that was destroyed by these policies. The tour is given regularly by Jordan Bell, who really knows his stuff. This is a very important tour. Um, there are environmental issues here in Gainesboro, has been for hundreds of years. There's uh, racist resources, the way that resources are given here in the city of Roanoke to this area. And just this area is, as I like to say, an ignored area. Uh, by many people in leadership, and it's been like that for 60, 70 years. So this is, again, the Gainesboro area, and this used to be what many people reference to as the Black Wall Street. Over the past two years, you've probably seen in the news, Black Wall Street, Tulsa, Oklahoma, the Greenwood District. Well, this was Southwest Virginia's own Black Wall Street. It had over 200 businesses, it had a medical clinic, it had its own hospital, it had its own library, um, it had doctor's offices, it had taxi companies, movie theaters, hotels, it even had its, the first black life-saving crew in the country, started right here in Roanoke, Virginia in 1941. So this is a very, very important area, 
very, very important history. Um, Gainsborough produced the first black ambassador of the in the country, civil rights attorney, doctors, lawyers, and everybody were next door neighbors. So you could have been a, you could have lived right next door to your doctor. You could have lived right next door to your teacher. But when urban renewal hit here in the 1950s, it completely wiped it away. And so many people classified as urban renewal, but many people in this community back then ca called it Negro removal. These streets used to be three streets. So we are standing on Patton Avenue, which is right here. And you used to be able to drive straight through this street up that hill. There was a mansion built by Dr. Isaac D. Burrow. Dr. Isaac D. Burrow was the leading African-American physician here in Roanoke. He passed away in 1914 after he was refused surgery by all the major white hospitals in here in the city of Roanoke. He developed gallstones and he was refused surgery. So he, his wife and a colleague got on a train and had to travel over 200 miles to Howard University Freedman's Hospital in Washington, DC. Unfortunately, he passed away from that surgery. But 10 years prior to that, he built the mansion that you see on your paper right on top of this hill here. And in 1915, after his death, his colleagues started Borough Memorial Hospital, which was the first black hospital in Southwest Virginia. So this is a very important area. You used to be able to drive straight through here and connect to where the Burglar Center is now before the interstate was built in the 1950s and 60s. This street right here was not a cul-de-sac. It used to be able to drive straight through there. So what happened was is they blocked off all traffic access. They blocked off all walking access. They blocked off you being able to drive from this neighborhood to that neighborhood without having to go all the way around or walk simply down the street to that area. So three, from three important uh, takeaways from this is urban renewal projects, they were three here in Roanoke. This was the most urban renewal project city in the country. Usually you only have one major project. That's where you build an interstate or a civic center. Here in Roanoke, there were three. 1955, you had the Commonwealth Project. 1964, you had the Kimball Project. And in 1968, you had the Gainsborough Project. Over 1,000 homes were completely destroyed. Many of those homes set ablaze over 200 businesses, over 10 schools, and over 10 churches. On this street right here, there was an elementary school called Gainsborough Elementary School. There was also a church called Mount Zion, completely wiped away. There was an old YMCA directly across the street, wiped away. There were over 1,000 dead bodies dug up from a cemetery called Old Lick Cemetery and dumped in a mass grave. Depending on where you came in at, there's a fenced-in piece of land on Orange Avenue as you pass Sheets, as you're getting on the interstate on your right. There are tombstones over there. It's about 20 tombstones over there. That is the remains of the Old Lick Cemetery. If you're familiar with Virginia Western, community college that was once a graveyard dumped in a mass grave so this area was really completely destroyed by governmental policies
and still continue to be ignored by governmental policies. Yes, ma'am. You mentioned the three urban renewal projects. What were they supposed to be for? They were supposed to I mean, rebuild homes. That, that's, that was the promise to the community. We would take down your rundown shacks, your blight. So what they did was they put the word blighted on those properties. And once your property is considered blighted, the federal government, the state government, they give what happened here. They gave the Roanoke Housing Authority millions and millions of dollars to, to proceed with these projects. And you're supposed to be given just compensation, Fifth Amendment, just compensation for your property. And what, what, was, what was supposed to happen was they were supposed to rebuild the homes or they told them that they were gonna rebuild the homes. That never happened. What they did was they built housing projects. And if you grew up in the Northeast section where the Burglar Center is, more than likely you were told to move into the Lincoln Terrace housing projects. So your homes were not rebuilt. You probably, if your home was worth, in the 1950s, let's say a home was $15,000. If your home was worth $15,000, they might have given you $1,500. And so what you had to do was, at the age of 75, your house is paid off, you've raised your family, you had to, at 75, you had to pack up, move to a new home, take on a new mortgage. And a lot of those folks passed away from just a simple heartbreak. Their homes were taken, their schools were taken, their churches were taken. Everything they knew was completely destroyed. And so the Commonwealth Project, the Kimball Project, and the Gainesboro Project were all urban renewal projects here in the city of Roanoke. A book called Root Shock by Dr. Mindy Fullylove talks about Newark, New Jersey, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and Roanoke, Virginia. And in this book, she talks about the psychological damage that urban renewal did to those three cities. That's why the book is called Root Shot, because a lot of us, we consider our home our roots. We consider our neighborhood and our communities our roots. And so when those are completely destroyed and wiped away, your roots have been shocked. So she came here to Roanoke, little old Roanoke. She came here to Roanoke. She's a professor in New Jersey or New York. She came here to Roanoke, she spoke in front of city council, and she took all of those findings, those interviews, photos, all that information, and she put it into a book called Root Shot. Right under here, there's a creek under the interstate. My grandmother, who just turned 91 a few days ago, her and her sister were actually baptized in that creek. So their church was actually right next to the creek. That was completely wiped away and destroyed. The way that I got started was, I asked my grandmother to show me her childhood home. Can anybody, can anybody go back to their childhood home today? Who can go back to their childhood home today? I asked my grandmother to show me her childhood home. She drove me right up here to a street called Rutherford Avenue. When she grew up, it was called 7th Avenue. She took me right up here on the hill. She could see St. Andrew's Catholic Church from her house, her front porch where the house that she grew up in, and she took me to an empty piece of land. And of course I asked, well, where's the home at? And she told me it was complete, it was, it was destroyed by urban renewal, and that's how this process started. And her, her great-grandmother, 
Her grandma, her great grandmother, who was a slave in Floyd County after after the Civil War ended, she moved here to Roanoke. Her grandmother lived there. Her her mother lived there. Her five uncles, it was just a family home. Great grandmother, grandmother, mom, five uncles, and her two siblings all lived in that home. Completely wiped out and destroyed. So this happened throughout the country. It happened throughout the country. Um, right here in Roanoke, it also happened three times from about 1955 up into the late 1990s. Up into the late 1990s. All urban renewal projects. That was Jordan Bell setting the stage for the two-hour walking tour of the historically black community of Gainesboro in the city of Roanoke, Virginia. There you have just some of the voices from our very intersectional walk for Appalachia's future. You've been listening to The Forest and the Trees, Global and Local Perspectives on the Environment, with your host, Melinda Tuhus. Tune in on the second Saturday of every month at 9.30 a.m., here on WPKN 89.5 FM for more environmental news you can use.